0: Father, I pray this morning for the sake of your church, and for the sake of your name, for the sake of those individuals gathered here who are called by your name. I pray for clarity. I pray for conviction. I pray for courage. I pray for truth. Lord, I pray that this teaching would be drenched in humility and grace and love, and yet truth, Father, I pray that you would just bless us this morning um, in the in the very difficult um, situation that we find ourselves here, especially in California, uh, to live out our Christianity uh, with integrity and also humility and love. So I just ask you bless this time and bless us in Christ's name, Amen. Well, if you weren't here last week, then. Um, uh, The leadership of this church has asked that I take three weeks and address some of the issues that we're facing as Christians, uh, cultural, um, social issues that really aren't just cultural and social, they're biblical, they're life issues. Um, Last week we looked at, um, some have called it the sanctity of life or how God views unborn human life or in the negative term, abortion. And if you didn't hear that, then um, I'd encourage you to go online and and watch and listen. I believe it was laid out as best as possible, as humbly as possible, as truthful as possible. And this morning, we come to another topic, and that is uh, uh, human sexuality. Now, let me just say, um, it's not easy to talk about. And for some, it's probably not all that easy to hear either. Um, but if we can just put our feelings aside for a second the most important thing for the christian is to understand what the bible teaches on these things um, for the sake of loving god and understanding how he's created us so like i tried last week i'm going to lay it out as best as possible as humbly as possible and so if i could just encourage you if you find yourself wincing inside or going "Ooh," i mean if, if i was tending for the first time i might feel feel that way too um, just to put those things aside, and let's just examine together uh, what the scripture has to teach um, on this issue of human sexuality. If I could get someone to close that door over there, that'd be awesome. I saw somebody run by just now, and it's like, whew, it's the Superman costume. With that said, let's rewind for a second and uh, in history. I'm going to take you back to uh, 1977 and um, some of you weren't alive then, some of you were 50 back then, Uh, to a TV show. And I'm gonna date myself, but it makes the point. There was a TV show that aired between 1977 and 1981 called Eight is Enough. Do you remember that? Eight is Enough. It basically followed the Bradford family and their eight children. And it was a a family-friendly show. Um, Not quite as family-friendly as the Waltons or Little House on the Prairie, but um, We loved it. My parents let us watch it. Well, it ran for four years, and there was one section of, well, it was a particular episode that kind of launched a, a season in the family life in which the oldest son, David Bradford, decided that he was going to move in with his girlfriend, and they were going to live together. And it created a kerfuffle in the family, because Tom Bradford, the dad, was up for Man of the Year. He was afraid that if people found out that his son was living with his girlfriend, well, then he would not get the Man of the Year Award. Now, that really doesn't make sense today, right? But it made sense back then because things were different. That, by and large, cohabitating with somebody of the opposite sex, living with somebody, as it was said, was frowned upon because the moral culture was different back then. That was then. Fast forward to today. That's commonplace. Nobody bats an eye at that. It's as commonplace as Starbucks, one on every corner. People just live together. It's not a big deal, right? That's just how it is. Not only so, but other things have become commonplace. And you know this. And what I'm going to say... Points, words are gonna probably like cause an inward reaction to you, but I have to use them. Now we have gay neighbors, you have gay coworkers, gay people in your family, and it's quite literally almost all television shows that we watch. It's just more commonplace. Things have changed a lot. Even in animated cartoons. So one of my I can't say it's one of my favorites because, well, but I like it. Ice Age, Sid the Sloth. So many good parts in that. But then they decide you're going to throw a couple of gay rhinos in there. Frank and Carl. Funny, but times have changed, and that's a kid's movie. How are we as Christians to think about these things? It's so prevalent around us, and there is a segment within that community that's very militant. I'm sure if they knew we were doing this this morning, some might disrupt the service. How are we to think about these things? How, how are we to engage in the culture in a way that is winsome and not a turnoff? That's what this message is about, is about kind of laying out the framework. Now, you can address these issues from the periphery. Like, I think of the whole issue, so many questions and subquestions, and are we born this way, and so forth, like the tattered edges of a, of a garment. Now, we can try and deal with all the tattered edges, or we can just kind of go to the center and just deal with it from a central position, which is what I want to do. But before I do, I just want to make two um, acknowledgements. One is I know, as do you, people who are same-sex attracted. They're in your families, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, um, a coworker and you love them, and you enjoy them, and you love being friends with them. This message is not about stopping that at all. You should enjoy people who are different than you and love them and befriend them. Um, We're told to love our neighbor, and our neighbors come in all different stripes, shapes, and sizes. As mentioned last week, like the cornerstone of human worth is not human sexuality or sexual orientation. The cornerstone of human worth is a simple fact that every human is created in the image of God and and worthy of our love. Uh, Let me also say that our culture wants us to divorce truth from love, unless it's their truth. Then you're fine. But can't we as Christians believe that something is right and wrong, at the same time love people who don't necessarily fit in with that? Some would say no. You can't love me if you believe that what I'm doing is wrong. In fact, it's hurtful to even know that you believe that what I'm doing is wrong. I I know that. It's out there. That's the spirit. So what they want you to do is love them and agree with their truth and separate yourself from the truth you've come to believe as a Christian. Those two things as Christians have to remain together. We can't love people if we're not committed to truth. And if we're just committed to truth but have no love, well, then we're a a sounding symbol worth nothing. So let me encourage you, if, if, if the Bible teaches in fact that there is a way, a right way and a wrong way, then let's plant our feet there, with, but not forsake the fact that we're supposed to love and befriend and enjoy people that God has put into our lives as our neighbors. Is that, is that clear? That's first acknowledgement. Second acknowledgement, in this group and probably in second service, there will be people sitting here Who struggle with same-sex attraction. My aim this morning is not to single you out, isolate you, or make you feel shame. At all. Because guess what? The infection of sin has disrupted and distorted our sexuality on every level regardless of whether you're a homosexual or a heterosexual. I'll tell you what, there would be some men who would be very, very uncomfortable If right now, we pulled out their computer and looked at their browsing history. It infects us all. I mean, if what Jesus said, that is to look lustfully with intent upon a woman, well, when you click that button and you're looking lustfully, well, then you were in violation of the law of love. This is an issue that all of us face. We're not just trying to single out one individual or group, but rather it's something that all of us at different levels and different ways struggle with. So... Let's kind of leave even the playing field. So with that said, I'll tell you where I'm going to go. I want to talk about the design, the perfect design. I want to talk about the problem, the fundamental problem, not just the breaking of rules, but the fundamental problem, the fundamental solution. And then I'm just going to close with some quick application thoughts. Let's start with, with the design. And we have to go back to the very beginning, of course. The design for human sexuality, very clear, and it's reaffirmed by Jesus after the fall. Male and female. Part of the design for human sexuality is male and female. We're going to talk about gender next week. It's related but different. So God created man in his image. In, his, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, before I kind of break that apart a little bit, I think it's important to drop down to verse 31, which is God's reflection on the creation of man, both male and female. In verse 31, he's speaking of day six. Now, through Genesis 1, as God creates, it says he saw the light and it was good. It was good. It was good. But then after he creates man in his image, male and female, he says it was very good. It's like, hey, on the other days, he created um, tremendous, wonderful, beautiful plants and flowers and animals and And ecosystems, I mean, it's all beautiful, but he comes to man, created in male and female form, and he says, that's very good. As if to say, this is exquisite. It's masterful. And this is before the fall, so it's flawless. Completely flawless design. Now, we know as it, humans what faulty or flawed design is. You know, you get a new car and it's recalled because something goes out on it. Or you get a piece of software and code is messed up and it's got a design flaw and it doesn't work properly. In our world, design flaws flourish. At this moment, there was no flaw. It's perfect. Male, female. God created them to be the perfect dance partners. Perfect in every way. That's the original design God created for sexualities, man, male, and female. Next, you sense the purpose of human sexuality. By the way, let me just throw this in for, because Jesus reaffirms this too. So it's not just Genesis, it's Jesus. And Colossians tells us that by him that is by jesus everything was created and it was created for him so if we have a problem with the design it's not just a problem with genesis it's a problem with jesus have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female he said therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and so forth and then he makes a present application therefore what god has joined let no man separate it's still intact so that's the design you also sense a purpose for human sexuality. Primarily, that is for procreation or having children. It's not the only thing he created it for, but it's the primary purpose. So he creates them male and female, and then he gives them this command. This is the mandate of humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So, part of their sexuality was to have babies who are going to grow up and. Have babies and they would grow up and have babies and they would grow up and have babies all of these bearing the image of God and filling the earth with image bearers to rule over the earth in a very benevolent and wonderful way that was the original design so human sexuality actually figures into God's advancing kingdom People filling the earth and ruling over the earth in benevolent ways. Sexuality is a part of that bigger plan. It's not just about me. It's not just about my personal fulfillment or personal happiness. That's to to look at it from my own self-centered perspective. He lays out his plan for humanity. And part of it is this sexuality between male and female to propagate. Right? And, And no matter what you do, you have to have a man and a woman to propagate. I mean... Just to put it straight out there, a same-sex couple cannot have a child without a man or a woman, or borrowing a man or a woman. It's just biologically impossible. And don't we know, even in, a, in our broken sense, that like male and female harmonize biologically, and, and also even in terms of emotions and psychologically? Generally speaking, it's broken. You can still see it. Does that mean, of course, oh, by the way, so this plan that God sets out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and exercise dominion, is something that is redeemed and will one day be restored by Jesus himself. He fulfills that plan. So by the time you get to the end of the Bible and redemption is complete, we see a family, a people bearing the image of God, restored. Restored. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, a rule, dominion, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus makes that completion possible, but our marriages and our sexuality is part of that right now. It's still in force. Now, does that mean that we're not to experience intimacy or pleasure in sexual union? No. No. You know, in Genesis 4, it says, and Now Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. <laughs> knew. Some think that's just a euphemism, because they don't want to use the word sex. Maybe that's part of it. But I think no means no. There's a sense in which you come to know somebody in profound ways in a sexual relationship that we can't even begin to understand. He knew her intimately, experientially, and yes, there was pleasure involved. This isn't a puritanical kind of arrangement. The purpose for human sexuality procreation, third. And this is where we get old fashioned, but it's not old fashioned. It might be old, but it's not fashion. (laughs) It's so important, it's so sacred, it's so powerful, this thing that God has given us, this gift of sexuality. For the sake of his unfolding plan, that it needs to be protected and preserved within covenant. Covenant protects something. You form a covenant when something is sacred, because you know it's worth. It, it has to be guarded, it has to be protected. So you make vows and and promises before witnesses. And that is part of the original design before the fall. Even Adam and Eve had to have this covenantal idea. Of course, it would also point forward to the covenant that Jesus would establish with his fallen bride, the church, to whom he'd pay for with his own blood. But it's right here, chapter 2, before the fall. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here you have, in the very beginning, when it was flawless, when it was, in the words of God, very good, exquisite, masterful. You have human sexuality experienced between male and female for the sake of procreation and also knowing each other, protected in the covenant of marriage. Like I said, that sounds so old-fashioned, Dan. Yes, it is very, very old. Nothing about it is fashionable. So that's that's the design from the beginning when it was flawless, when it was perfect. Sin came and damaged it. And anything outside of this, and if you're thinking, wow, this is going to go really narrow, Dan. Actually, I'm going to argue the opposite. Anything outside of that is considered immoral. And that's where all of the prohibitions come in. And so... One of those, and one of the most alarming to our culture, and some I think would want this ripped entirely out of the Bible, along with parts of Romans chapter 1. But Paul writes this, and and I'm going to comment on it, and don't react yet. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, massive attempts have been made to revise the history behind this verse to change what it means on the surface. But all of those revisions come up wanting. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody personally who wants to go deeper into this. But I want you to notice something. And by the way, Paul's talking about a committed lifestyle he's talking about this is who I am this is what I'm gonna do with my life regardless of what God says it's not talking about somebody who makes a mistake or slips or stumbles but I want you to notice two things because immediately your eyes go to who practice homosexuality there it is you notice that's not the first thing in the list actually the first things in the list probably apply more to heterosexual people. Sexually immoral, or the older term would be fornication, is sex between two people who are not married, mostly male and female. So guess who's in the hot seat now? Or the adulterers. Those are people who are married that are going across those marital covenantal lines, and and joining with somebody, they shouldn't. The violation of that sacred covenant. So it's not even the first on the list. We jump to it and say, there it is. It said, wait a second, the finger's pointing at all of us. And I also want you to notice something very important. It doesn't say those who are attracted to the same sex. It says those who practice very important, those who practice homosexuality. Now, I think it's important to talk about the why. So, I've laid out the design, and so, so why these rules? It feels like Christianity is so rigid and so not freeing, so, so restrictive. And that's where I think it's actually the opposite. It actually is imprisoning and enslaving. Because underneath human sin are two things, and those things go together. Human pride and idolatry. Human pride and idolatry. Paul writes it this way. Romans 1 he says because he's talking about how God gives people over to what they want their desires as an act of judgment he says because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator Let's think about this for a moment the archetypal sin was Adam and Eve God gave him everything A fully furnished garden, he gave Adam a hot wife, and he gave Eve a hot man. Food everywhere. Everything's beautiful. Everything's provided for them. They don't even have to till the soil at this point because the fruit trees are already grown. And then he places himself as the glorious center of the garden right there to converse with mankind, the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, of all life, the one who created Adam and Eve says, you're very good. But they exchanged in a moment because they believed that somehow biting the fruit would lead to freedom. And they left behind the infinite glory of who God was for them and all that he provided for the bite of the fruit, thinking that somehow now we're going to be free. And they ended up in prison. That is both human arrogance, to think there's something better than God, and human idolatry, in the sense that I'm going to worship the fruit instead of the one who created the garden. There's an exchange that happens. So when we decide to go outside the boundaries of what God has given and called us to do, in effect, we're saying, you're not as important to me as this. You're not as important to me, or as valuable to me, as crossing this line. And people are trying to, when they're pursuing sin, they're essentially trying to find that thing, trying to find that happy place, trying to find that place of peace, of belonging, of trying to find the right components to put together, to find out who they really are, to find out what is my real identity. What is that but a search for God? And finding it in all the wrong places. And realizing that if you search for God in anything other than God, you'll find yourself in a desert, in prison. That's, that's, that's the why. It's like God saying, you're going to choose the fruit over me? That's not just a list of rules. Essentially, it's, it's exchanging God for something far less important. Like God gives you a full banquet at the Four Seasons, seafood, steak, everything. And you want the piece of rotting fruit, the banana. It's an issue of of idolatry. And let me just add this. Because even in the design that God created for husband-wife, in the context of marriage, experiencing sexual relationship, even that can be made a God. If you think for one second that as soon as you find a hot wife who's going to give it up every day, you're going to arrive in heaven. You've made an idol out of marriage. And when you get there, guess what? It ain't work like that. It ain't work like that. Just ask anybody who's been married over five years. They'll tell you it ain't work like that. I think... At the end of the day, it's, it's not just about the rules, it's about the heart. Jesus got it right. Of course, he always gets it right. He says, for within, this is the words of Jesus, for within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, daft murder, adultery. It's because the heart's wrong. It's the heart. That's the real issue. It's the heart, the heart of arrogance and idolatry. That's what leads to all this proliferation of sin. So that's the, that's the why. It's underneath. It's an abandonment of God rather than a trust and a delight in God. This is a well-worn text from C.S. Lewis, but it's worth a repetition. When he said, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's like the holiday at the sea, that's God. Mud pies, choosing something other than God to fulfill you. So the solution... Jesus came to change that, and not just change that, but change us. We talk a lot about the cross and how at the cross Jesus pardoned us from sin. Sin is done away with. It's nailed to his cross so that we can go free from sin, all sin, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin. But he also came to to give us his spirit and to change us at the deepest level possible. There are some out there who would say, you can change everything, but not a sexual identity. Where we would say, or I think someone who's like really wrestling with the New Testament would say, no. He changes us deeply at the deepest parts, which will work its way out in everything else. Does the gospel really change us? Or does it change us halfway, three quarters of the way, 10%, 20%, 50%? He starts on the inside planting his seed of his own spirit in us so that we begin to change over a lifetime. But, the, but that change is central, it's core, it's pivotal, it's critical, it's fundamental, it's essential. One of the reasons I had Romans 8 read is because it, it shows two different ways of doing life. Life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Life in the flesh operates from a very different center, with different passions, different desires, different attractions. It wants what it wants, life in the flesh, because the heart has not been changed. People who live in the flesh follow their passions. The world and culture around, it, culture around us is living in that flesh and desiring the flesh and pursuing the flesh and trying to change laws to gratify the flesh. But there's life in the spirit. Newness of life. Or the Spirit comes in and sets you free. That's real freedom. Freedom to know God, love God, taste God. The freedom to begin to love one another selflessly and generously. That's freedom, not the opposite. That's the big lie. Pursuing freedom and finding yourself in prison or surrendering your heart to God and finding Freedom. I love Paul, the same one who wrote about homosexuality, is the one who says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's now who you are. You want to know what your identity is? It's a new creature in Christ. That's who you are. This is that Romans. Notice verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. From the law of sin, that is the domination of those sinful passions. That core has been broken. Now you need to live it out. So there you have the design, the problem, the solution, of course, is the gospel that changes us from the inside out. Now let me conclude with four application points. Thoughts on application. The last one has to do with how we live out our Christianity in the world. The first three have to do with how we deal with this as a community of faith. One, don't confuse identity with sexual desire. Don't confuse sexual identity with desire. That is, what you're attracted to, or who you're attracted to, or the gender you're attracted to, is not who you are. We do not base our identity on attractions. Listen, look at the, some of the things you desire. It's broken. Some dire, desire too much food. Desire to cut somebody off when they flip you the bird. We're not defined by our desires, even ones that we find ourselves chronically dealing with. If, imagine, okay. This is actually not beyond imagination. Imagine a guy can't stay faithful to one girl. He's got to have a whole bunch of girlfriends. And the girlfriends are like, why can't you just be faithful to one girl? Just just me. Why, 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 Why can't you do that? Why do you have to live this way in an open, free kind of sexual way? And he says, well, guess what? I am multisexual. That's who I am. I can't change that. We went from what you're attracted to, or what you desire to settle the identity, that's who you are. And I'm probably going to step on toes here, I'm just going to say this. As soon as a Christian says, I am gay, that's far more than I struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, well we all struggle with some kind of attraction issues. But as soon as you say that, now you've established that as who you are your identity and you can't change your identity goes too far we've already capitulated to a false narrative to a lie that's not who I am I am created in the image of God yes I am a child of God by way of the cross of Jesus who forgave me all of my sin. I have the Spirit of God in me that's changing me, conforming me to the image of Jesus from one degree to another degree, period. Do I struggle? Yes. But the old person I used to be does not define me anymore. That's not my identity. I have a new one. Now, the, the, now we live out that identity. So be very careful about terminology. I am a Christian. So. Let me, let me offer a book recommendation written by an African-American woman who was once gay. Some of you have read it or listened to it in Audible. She actually narrates her own book. Gay girl, good God. Gay girl, good God. Very gracious, tells her own story of how she was liberated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now she's married and has kids. And there's, there's a particular powerful community that hates that because it doesn't agree with their paradigm or their truth, in quotes. She writes this. I'm just gonna fast forward that. I don't believe it is wise or truthful to the power of the gospel to identify oneself by the sins of one's past or the temptations of one's present, but rather to only be defined by the Christ who's overcome both for those he calls his own. This is astute. All men and women, including myself, that are well acquainted with sexual temptation are ultimately not what our temptation says of us. We are what Christ has done for us. Therefore, our ultimate identity is very simple. We are Christians. Isn't that good? Don't let a a faulty identity enslave you into a life of enslavement. Two, if you trust God loves you, if you trust in his design, surrender to God's design and faith. I trust you. There may be a fallen part of you that wants to go outside the lines, but recognize I trust God loves me. I trust that this is how he wants to unfold his plan in the world, and so I'm going to surrender myself to him and what he says of me. We just sang that song, right? Who you say I am. And I'm gonna live within the framework that you've set out for me because I trust you. It's an issue of trust. Three, fight against the temptation in loving community. I realize reading that now, that's not well worded. (laughs) What I mean is, this is where I think the church has done horribly. I certainly was in my childhood and even today. There's no room in the church culture for someone to say, hey, I struggle with same-sex attraction. There should be. Struggles are real. And and, and so they hide and find themselves feeling shamed, alone, isolated. You can't fight a battle in hiding You're alone. And that's not true of, of same-sex attraction. That's true of this epidemic of Pornographic addictions of men in Christian churches, they keep it silent too, hidden. I can't tell anybody because I'm too ashamed. So they hide and they remain in slavery. Now, I'm not saying you need to tell it to the whole world, but listen, there has to be cultural room within a church for people to be honest with people they trust who know they love the Lord. Go, pray for me. I'm struggling. Shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm. I'll pray for you if that same-sex attraction is it's something you struggle with because here's what I struggle with, and I'm struggling. I have to put covenant eyes on my computer because I struggle with pornography. I mean, the, the, those are the kinds of things that will come out. So there has to be a realization. We fight together. And there has to be a culture that is willing to be open and loving and accepting of our struggles. But we're pursuing holiness. makes No, no, no bones about it. We want to follow Jesus, and we're willing to do it together with our struggles. You're not alone. And last, just in how we deal with, this should be obvious, but how we deal with the world around us that's still living in the flesh, still in the dark, still lost, still following their passions. I would just encourage you to lead in your relationships with people who don't know the Lord. Lead with love and gospel, not moral imperatives. Moral imperatives like, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, this is wrong. Guess what? It's not moral imperatives that change the heart. It's the gospel that does. And if you're willing to love a person where they're at and give it time and just love them no matter what they do, your neighbor, your, 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 your brother, your sister, your child, just love them. They probably already know that what, you may not agree with what they do, but love them. And given an opportunity, you talk about how Jesus gave his life for sinners, of whom all of us were once a part. And let the power of the gospel unlock the heart to discover how wonderful God is. And once God, people understand how, how wonderful Christ is, well, then the other stuff, the chains begin to fall off. And then they want to follow the moral imperatives because their heart has been changed. I hope that you will talk about this topic with your sons and daughters, if they're still in malleable age, because we are facing a tsunami against this teaching. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for everyone here, and I pray that you would continue to work in our church into the fiber of our relationships, that we would be earnest about the gospel, but also earnest about helping each other to move forward in the faith. Lord, strengthen your church, humble your church, give us courage to be light in darkness. In Christ's name I pray.